Travis Ishikawa hits one in the right. The Giants win the pennant. some Giants fans in the house. I'm betting we have some Giants fans over in the family room. Welcome to those folks over there. There's some Giants fans in my house. I went to my first ever Major League Baseball game in 1967 with my dad at Tiger Stadium in Detroit. Um, so I grew up enjoying baseball. Um, my wife did not grow up as a baseball fan, but she's become one because my 16-year-old Garrett um, is a baseball player. He's a lefty, pitcher, first base, some outfield. He's an enormous Giants fan. On Thursday night, I was actually across the street at good friends of ours who are Dodgers fans, which is weird. And so I was making a lot more noise when this thing happened. And then my son, who was at home because he was ostensibly watching the game while he was studying Spanish. <laughs> he was at our friend's door within 30 seconds. He didn't even put his shoes on. He sprinted across the street with his socks. And then my wife showed up about a minute later going, the Giants win the pennant. The Giants, what an amazing, amazing moment. And it's even more amazing if you know a little bit about Travis Ishikawa's backstory. The guy who hit the home run has been released or traded from six different teams in the last 35 months. He used to be on the Giants. They traded him to the Pirates. The Pirates released him back in April. He ended up on the minor leagues, he's bouncing around the minor leagues this summer, age 30 or 31, thinking maybe it's time to, to give it up. He actually was on the phone at one point with a friend of his crying, saying, asking, is it time to just walk away? But the Giants contacted him and brought him up, and he was back on the big league club, he was back on the Giants, he was doing some spot pinch hitting, and it turned out the Giants needed an outfielder. They had some injuries, um, and Ishikawa was not an outfielder. He's really an infielder, first baseman. But they put him out in left field. He had only played a handful of games before Thursday night in the outfield. And if you watch the game, he made a mistake. He misjudged a fly ball in the early part of the game, allowed a run to score, some, and the Cardinals, it could have been a, a terrible moment for him. But then in the bottom of the ninth, with a 2-0 count, boom, redemption. I love that about sports stories. I heard several commentators say, there's no way that Hollywood could have written a script like that. But you know what? I bet Hollywood could, because Hollywood has told more than a few pretty good sports stories, pretty good sports movies. I've got a list up here of some of my favorites. Perhaps you've seen some of those, Hoosiers, The Blind Side, Radio, The Rookie, Remember the Titans, and the classic, Rudy. 
the thing about these is that they have some things in common. They take complex, complicated characters. They introduce you to those characters, and they introduce some kind of attention, some kind of stressful thing that's not just about the game. It's often about their lives. It's often about challenges that they're facing in their lives. And then the blend of their lives and the blend of sports comes together in some kind of a, res- of a resolution. It's, it's often triumphant. What's not to like about a great sports movie, a great sports moment? I have a few sports moments in my life. I, I did a lot of youth sports. Many of you perhaps did. Um, I started off playing youth baseball, basketball, football. What a cutie, huh? I, I wasn't very good at any of them, but I, I, but I played. And then when I was going to high school, um, we moved to a new community. My dad was in the Air Force, so we moved around quite a bit. We moved into a new community, and we knew how to kind of connect when we moved somewhere because we moved quite often. And so my mom signed up, myself and my siblings, for a summer recreational swim team. And I'd never been a competitive swimmer, but I'd swum, been a swimmer for fun during the summers. Well, it turned out that I did okay. I had a little bit of talent, it turned out, for swimming. And so a friend of mine said, hey, why don't you come out for high school water polo? Well, I had a little bit of swimming talent, and I'd played enough sports that I could catch and throw the ball. turned out I could play a little bit of water polo. And I kind of committed to that. That became my thing. And I played all through high school, water polo and swimming. I went on to college. Uh, I played a year of water polo. I swam all four years. Um, and I loved it. I loved the intensity of workouts, even when they were brutal. Um, I loved the incredible sensation of swimming fast in a big meet. Um, I love the physicality of water polo. But I didn't have any movie moments. I didn't have any earth-shattering Hollywood-style moments. I, I had a lot of little good things that happened in my athletic career. I mean, I made a basket in a key moment. We won a game in, in a bit of an upset. Uh, I made a tackle in youth football. But I also had a lot of not-so-good moments. I got disqualified in a race. We lost a game we really should have won. I struck out to end the baseball game. Lots of little good moments, lots of little bad moments. I even had one experience where I had a good moment and a bad moment at exactly the same time. I played water polo at USC. That's the University of Southern Carmichael, also known as American River College. (laughs) It's a two-year program, and so I was a freshman, and I made the team, but we had a pretty decent team, so there were quite a number of sophomores, and they played ahead of me most of the time especially if it was a close game. If it was a close game, I probably wasn't going to see any action. We're playing a pretty important conference game against an opponent um, from down the valley somewhere. I think it was Fresno City College. And there's 37 seconds left, left. There's just been a foul committed against one of our players. He was injured on that play, and it turned into what's called in water polo an ejection. So the ejection means that they're going to have one of their players who are going to have to sit out for the next 30 seconds. There's only 37, 36 seconds left in the game, and we're up by a goal. So the team swims over. I'm standing on the sideline. I haven't been in the game. And our, my teammate says, I, I'm, I'm hurt. I've got to come out. And the coach turns to me and says, Gruba, you're in. Okay, I hop in. And then the Gruba, the, the, the Gruba that's me. Then the coach says, here's what we're going to do. We have a 30-second opportunity where we're a man up. We have a six-on-five advantage. We are going to pass the ball around. We are not going to shoot. We're going to pass the ball around. We're going to burn as much of that 30 seconds as we can. And then when there's only a second or two left before we lose possession because we've 
not shot in time, were going to dump the ball in the far corner. That only leaves them seven or eight or nine seconds to try and bring the ball all the way down. That's not enough time. We're going to win by one. Got it? Go! So we go out there and we set up. And I'm the new kid in the, in the, in the lineup. And I'm, the other team doesn't know who I am. I haven't played a moment in this game. So they're paying a lot more attention to other guys than our team who are better players than I am. And I am wide open. And they start to pass the ball around my teammates, and I am splashing the water, and I'm screaming, Ball! Ball! Get me the ball! And my teammate, who's on the sidelines, standing next to the coach, who had just come out of the game, I hear this later, he turns to the coach and he goes, Oh, coach, he's going to shoot. Gruba, he's going to shoot. Look at him, he's going to shoot. Ball! Ball! Get me the ball! And then it happens. And just like a sports movie, the whole moment went to slow motion. And the music crescendoed. And the ball came to me in super slow-mo. And I caught the ball. And I threw the ball with all the force I could. And I watched it leave my arm and spin toward the cage. And the opposing goalie in slow motion went up for the block. Misjudged, it skittered under his arm. I scored! Yeah! And then I turned to the coach for what I thought would be a similar reaction. I thought I would see, yeah! That's not what I saw. What I saw was, what are you doing? They restarted play. Six or seven seconds go off the clock. Game over. We win by two. I swim over to the side. We've won the game. I look up and the coach is doing this. Did you hear a single thing that I said? And my response was, yes. I heard you say, Grubaugh, you're in. And I didn't hear anything else. A lot of little good moments, a lot of little not-so-good moments, but no Hollywood moments, if you will. I'm going to transition to a passage of Scripture. Some of you, you're, you're not baseball fans, Giants fans, you're not really sports fans. So I apologize for the sports metaphors and anecdotes that I opened with tonight, uh, this morning, but um, I want to take a look at a passage in which the writer of this passage actually pulls out and uses a sports metaphor and see if that can be instructive for us in our lives as Christ followers in terms of who we are and what God calls us to be. Uh, The book of Hebrews is in the New Testament, and Perhaps the most famous chapter in the book of Hebrews is chapter number 11. It's often referred to in shorthand as just the faith chapter. And in the opening of chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews, and and we don't know who the writer is. Scholars say it's unknown. It's, It's anonymous. But the writer of Hebrews gives this simple and yet profound description of faith, what it is. The passage says this. Now, faith is confidence and what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see. Let me read that again. Faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see. And then in the rest of chapter 11, the writer gives us this long list of heroes of faith, Old Testament heroes of faith, Abel and Enoch, Noah and Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Rahab, Gideon, and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, 
Samuel and the prophets. And then the writer explains a little bit about what some of their experiences were. Some were conquerors. Some were tortured. Some closed the mouths of lions. Others were jeered and flogged. Some quenched flames. Some were put to death. But they all remained faithful. And then in chapter 12, the writer is looking for an illustration, an example of what it means to be a person of faith in the context of being a Christ follower. He's looking for some kind of way to illustrate that. And he reaches for and uses a sports metaphor. He writes this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's a reference to all those faith heroes that he had just described in the previous chapter. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And then, and here it comes. Here comes the sports metaphor. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Eugene Peterson is one of my favorite writers. He wrote a paraphrase of the scripture that he calls the message. He's written some other books. He's also a pastor on the East Coast. Um, In his introduction to the book of Hebrews, he writes this. He says, too much religion is a bad thing. We can't get too much of God. We can't get too much faith and obedience. We can't get too much love and worship. But religion, the well-intentioned efforts we make to get it all together for God, can very well get in the way of what God is doing for us. The heart of the story, Peterson writes, is what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. And we see that best through Jesus. I've heard theologians describe Jesus in this simple way, that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God. He's God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. He's God with skin on. Our response is to listen to what he says and live in obedience. Or the way Peterson puts it is that our part of the deal is faith. But we tend to keep adding stuff on. We do a faith and. We do a Jesus and. We try to make it better. Peterson says we embellish it. It's not just faith. That's, that's too easy. So there must be some other stuff besides just faith. So we add do's and don'ts and must-do-gotta-do's and cans and can'ts. We weren't alone. We're not alone in this. The ancients did this back in the time of Hebrews. There were things, and they're described in other parts of the book of Hebrews, that they were worried about what additional role this played. In other parts of Scripture, it's about circumcision, Jesus and circumcision. In Hebrews, what about the proper role of angels, Jesus, and let's make sure we have the proper role for angels, or the importance of the priesthood, or the status of Moses in the pantheon, how important is he, Jesus and. And I think we do it today. I think it's easy for us, it's easy for me to add on. It's not just Jesus. It tends to be Jesus and or Jesus without. Jesus and a particular political perspective. Jesus without dancing. 
Jesus and a particular educational background. Jesus without alcohol. They're distractions. We add this stuff in and they end up being distractions. Jesus offers us grace and love and says our response should simply be faith. But it's easy for us to turn it into a diet of duty, a diet of must-dos, gotta-dos, should-dos. And if that's how we're living our lives as Christ followers, with those duties attached, I think that starves our hearts. I think it kills our ability to, to really be able to run the race. Now, now, make no mistake. There are things that we're responsible for. There are things we're responsible to, people that we're responsible to. And I'm not suggesting we just blithely go about our way because the burdens can be wearisome and the duties that we have to engage in are, are exhausting and we can just forget about them. It's, it's not that simple. It's not walking away from duty, but duty alone isn't enough. I've recently tried to kind of rekindle my athletic career, but, but that's going way too far. I've tried to work out a little more. So back in June, I tried to make a commitment that I'm going to work out a minimum of three days and as many as five or six days a week. And three days a week, I'm going to do cardio and weights. And the other one or two or three days a week, I'm going to swim again. So back in June, I got in the water for the first time in a really long time. And can I tell you that two lanes over was another lakesider. Some of you know her. Her name is Lynette Greco, and she is a swimming stud. So she's going, and I get in the water for the first time in years, and I go, and I used to do, at the peak of my college swimming career, I was doing 18,000 yards a day. That's more than 10 miles. I couldn't go 100 yards without having a near-death experience. <laughs> but can I tell you that it's gotten easier. Now, I'm never going to do what I did when I was 22. I, I, it's not going to happen. But it's gotten a little easier. It's, I'm a little better. And, and I find myself actually experiencing a little bit of desire, maybe a little, this is shocking, maybe a little bit of joy. I kind of like doing it. Now, I'm trying not to go overboard, but I kind of like doing it. If it's just duty, we'll be frustrated and bitter, perhaps, and angry. But duty and desire is what faith ultimately becomes about. But if it's just duty, that's frustrating our hearts were made for more than that. Erwin McManus tells a story. Um, his, he extends the anecdote is what he does. He extends the metaphor. Here's how he says it. A pastor from Southern California, Erwin McManus says, we were made to fly. And if we were made to fly, even running really fast isn't all that impressive. We want to be inspired. We want to be able to have a passion. We want to experience joy. We want to see beauty. We want to understand and recognize that there's meaning in our lives. But if we don't have desire for that, if we don't have joy in that, wh where do we get that? I think Scripture gives us an answer. Scripture says you can ask for it. Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 13, be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. 
That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you, God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. If we have a duty-only diet, it's all about what we can do for God. But God calls us to be people of faith and to be with him. There's, there's an, a New Testament story many of you are familiar with where two sisters got a visit from a friend, Jesus. The two sisters were Martha and Mary. And Jesus came to their house. And he came in, and Martha immediately set herself to all the preparations and the work that had to be done. She was probably in the kitchen. She was working hard to make this visit a memorable visit. And her sister Mary was out with Jesus, sitting down, hearing his stories, listening to what he had to say to them and how he was teaching them, and perhaps parables were being shared. And Martha got frustrated and bitter and a little angry. And she finally went to Jesus. She said, Jesus you got to tell Mary to get back here and help me out. And Jesus gently chides Martha and says, Martha, Mary made the right choice. Mary's chosen to be with me. So are there other places in your life where you started with duty but you can begin to see and experience some desire, some passion, some joy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet that those of you in the room who've ever started a new job, whether it was in your field and you were transferring to a new firm, or whether it was your very first ever job, you probably sent a, uh, felt a fairly significant experience of weight on your shoulder, of expectations of the duties that you had to accomplish. I certainly did. My first teaching job was a long time ago at Mission Hill Junior High School in Santa Cruz, California. I was hired on a Friday. Monday was a holiday. School started on Tuesday. And I was leaving Sacramento to go to Santa Cruz to do it. And so it was incredibly daunting. It didn't help any that it was junior high. It was hard. And I spent weeks and months and eventually even years early in my teaching career First, just staying barely ahead of students, some of whom were as smart or smarter than me. I was a day ahead, sometimes an hour or two ahead for the next class down the line. And then for the early part of my teaching career, Sunday was kind of a bummer day because I loved worship in the morning at the churches that my wife and I attended. But Sunday afternoon and evening was consumed by all the preparation I had to do so that I had a a clue what I was going to do for the next week. And it was initially a lot about duty. But I've been doing this a long time, and I like what I do. I'm, I'm pretty decent at it, and the duty obligation side of it is still there. I have some responsibilities, but there's more passion, and there's joy, and there's fulfillment, and there's satisfaction. I bet that's true for, for many of you if you reflect on your experiences and your jobs. So let me offer a, a couple of practical solutions, practical suggestions if I can. First of all, we've already touched on it. Desire, well, I think we have to acknowledge, desire to connect with God, desire to be faithful, comes from God. I don't think any of us, we're fallen people, we make mistakes. I don't think any of us have a natural bent to pursue God. Romans says that none of us are righteous. So one practical step is I think we need to ask God, God, give me the desire to be that person of faith you call me to be. I think that'll work out differently for different Of us in the room, we have different ways that God's designed us, different ways that we tick. But I think that's suggestion number one. 
ask God for the desire to be the person of faith that he says that we're supposed to be. Second suggestion is I think we need encouragement. I think corporate encouragement, I think worship can be incredibly encouraging. I'm normally a 6.30 Saturday guy, and I just love what our worship team does. And then when we get guests like these folks from William Jessup, it, it's incredibly encouraging to me to be able to come and sing and sometimes just listen uh, and be encouraged in, in my race. Help me persevere in my race. But I think we need individual encouragement too. I think we need somebody in our lives who's the person who's running the same race that we are, that we can come up to and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you talk with, talk with me about this? Can you help me with this? Can, and, and somebody who will encourage us and that we can encourage them. For me, um, the, the number one encourager in my life is my wife. She is, um, she is a spiritual giant. I married way, way, way up. But she gently encourages me and, and gently helps me keep connected with God and with that relationship. And, and that's huge for me. Um, perhaps you've had other encouragers, have other encouragers in your life. I, I, I think back to my childhood, and my dad um, was an encourager, is an encourager. He's 87. He's living in Davis. Um, he's battling cancer that's going to take his life in the next days, weeks, perhaps months. Um, but I think back as I've been reflecting on our relationship and reflecting on him and remembering what an incredible encourager he's always been. When I was little, I wanted my dad to tell me what to do with my life. So I would say, Dad, what should I be when I grow up? And I quit asking that question eventually because my father would never give me a straight answer. What I wanted him to say was, oh, you should be a fighter pilot like me, or you should be an engineer. Or you should be a police officer, or a firefighter, or an accountant, or you should... I wanted an answer, because then I would probably do it, because I'm the oldest child, and we know duty. We can do duty. But my dad would never say that. Instead, what he said was, you should do, you can do whatever you want. That wasn't the answer I wanted. But what an encouraging answer where he basically was saying... Find out who you are. Find out how you tick. Allow God to speak into that and then fly. If desire comes from God, we can ask for it. We need encouragement. Corporate, but I think we need individual encouragement. And finally, third, if you've had that faith desire and you've sensed that it's waned, I think it's appropriate to try and self-reflect on why. What's been the cause? It'll be different for all of us. I can tell you that for me, the cause sometimes is that I'm overconnected sometimes. I Facebook. I email. I text. I do it all. <laughs> and it's easy, I think, to be so plugged in that we quit pursuing that simple faith because we're so busy. So for me, and my wife is a great encouragement in this, I sometimes need to unplug for me, what works is I like to read. I'm a reader, and I like to have the chance to sit down and read some of the people like Eugene Peterson and Erwin McManus, and what they say often speaks to me and helps me in that faith journey. Figure out what it is that's caused your desire to wane and figure out what that means to look like to turn that back around. So I have a confession to make. I've already kind of made it. I am the oldest child of four, and so I, I know duty. 
I know obligation. My parents didn't put that on me. I did a perfectly good job of putting that on myself. Thank you very much. I'm way more of Martha than I am of Mary. My reaction often is to have expectations on me, and then I often end up throwing those out on others. And when those expectations aren't being met by me and by others, I can pretty easily go to a sense of a little bit of bitterness and a little bit of frustration and a little bit of anger. I'm Martha more than Mary. And so I go to a passage in Matthew chapter 11, and it's my favorite passage in Scripture. And I go to it over and over again because it speaks to me in a way that allows me to back off of the extra duties that I keep throwing on and that sometimes perhaps are thrown on me and helps remind me that it's simply about faith. It's not Jesus and, it's just Jesus. And in the message version of Scripture, at the end of Matthew 11, Jesus is speaking and he says this, Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Every time I read that passage... I feel like I once again have the freedom to engage in what Peterson says is the simple act of faith. What he says is the one human action in which we don't get in the way, but we get on the way. I just love that. We just need to get on the way. The sports metaphor. Run the race with perseverance. If that applies to all of us, we're all athletes. We're all players in the race, in the game. And it's like you're all sitting here exhausted at halftime. And you, and you maybe need a little bit of encouraging conversation. I know I sometimes do. Because we've all been beaten up. If we're honest, we've all been beaten up. We've made mistakes along the way. We're not perfect people. We've made selfish decisions along the way that have made it difficult for us to engage as Christ followers. Or we've thrown lots of extra stuff, lots of extra expectations on top of what we're supposed to be doing. We've added. It's not just Jesus. It's Jesus and. But I have good news. Jesus says today to you, to me, to all of us that we get a fresh start. Through Jesus, through the grace and forgiveness that he offers all of us, and the acknowledgement that he alone is sufficient. We can't add anything to it. We can't add anything that he hasn't already done for us. May that be my faith. May that be your faith. May that be our faith. Now, we'll make mistakes, even with a fresh start. Whether your faith journey is 30, 40 years long, or 30 or 40 minutes long, you'll make mistakes. Some of the same mistakes you've made before. And you'll throw some of those expectations back on, some of those duties, some of those must-do, gotta-dos. But His grace is sufficient. 
there's enough grace for us to be able to stand up and brush ourselves off and acknowledge that it's just Jesus. It's just faith. May that be my faith. May that be your faith. May that be our faith. And finally, there's some encouragement at the end of Hebrews that I want to share with you. Near the end of the book, the writer says this. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Amen. And then the writer offers this blessing near the very end of the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May that be my faith. May that be your faith. May that be our faith.